All eyes were on his sister. All eyes were on his sister, and, well, they should have been. At just 10 years of age, she had been diagnosed with advanced leukemia. Overnight, the boy realized that their family life had changed completely. They were now spending all their hours in doctor's offices or clinics or hospital rooms. He wondered at only age eight, what happened? What, what happened to soccer practice and birthday parties? and leisurely Saturday pancake breakfast around the dining room table. But all eyes were now focused on his sister, and only two years her junior, out of his own eyes, he had cried a swimming pool of tears for her. Now they spent most of their time in the cavernous cancer clinic with broad, bright hallways and the ubiquitous drone of the intercom with white-jacketed personnel racing this way and that way, looking at clipboards and sort of talking to one another. They would line up in front of the bank of silver elevators. They would climb on, they would climb off. The boy would sit next to his father in the waiting room in a pink plastic molded chair and he knew he was invisible to all those who went back and forth so he just he just listened just listened and watched until one day two of the white coated personnel came right up to him and he realized that one of them was his sister's physician the physician a nice fellow said buddy can you help us out? And the boy nodded. Without saying a word, he got up with his father and followed the physician and his assistants through those double doors through which his sister had disappeared hours before. Upon going through those doors, his mother approached him and the little boy began to tear up. And she said, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. And the doctor directed the boy and his father to go into this small treatment room. And once seated, the doctor said, Buddy, your sister needs some new blood. Would you give her some of yours? And unlike any eight-year-old they had ever encountered before, the little boy said, Can I think about it? <laughs> So the physician and his assistant retreated for 30 minutes. And when they came back, the little boy said, I'll do it. And so then they escorted the father and the, the boy into another treatment room and put him on a gurney. And the nurse, who was very experienced, uh, tenderly wove the needle into his arm. He only winced once. And he fixed his eyes over on the clear plastic bag that was filling up with his blood, a sight that he had never contemplated before. The physician came back in about 10 minutes later. and He said, buddy, how are you holding up? He said, fine, sir. And the doctor, placing his eyes back down on his clipboard, made an about face and was just about to leave the room. 
When the little boy said, Doctor, Doctor, I, I, I do have one question. And the physician turned around and looked at the boy and said, Yes. He says, I just want to know how long I have before I start to die. And suddenly, all eyes were focused on the little boy. The gravity of the moment had the people change their focus. And why not? You have an eight-year-old who's willing to offer his life for, the, uh, for the, the healing of his sister. And so they begin to shift their focus. And that's exactly what Jesus wants the disciples to do when he tells them this baffling parable. The parable starts off in a somewhat strange manner. It seems that um, a manager of a large estate is being dismissed. Why? Because, well, he is crooked. <laughs> and so he's called in and said, guess what? I'm giving you your walking papers. You have just a few days to get all of your affairs and the affairs of this state in order. And just like that eight-year-old boy, <laughs> that crooked manager has to think about it. <laughs> and in an unusual twist in the parables, we're invited into the private ruminations of that crooked manager. And he says to himself, oh boy, what am I to do now that I've been dismissed from my position? I have no way to feed myself or clothe myself or put a roof over my head. I am too weak now to dig ditches and I'm a little too proud to go beg for what I need. And then he goes, oh, I know what I'll do. And then we're off to the races and we leave his head into his actions and he begins to make a series of small dubious deals so that when he's dismissed, he'll have a place to go and something to eat. <laughs> and if the parable is not bad enough, then that first century group must have been stunned when the owner of the estate commends the crooked manager. Still loses his job, but he commends them for his actions. And the disciples must have been shocked down to the sole of their sandals when Jesus says to them, take a good look at this, at this crooked manager. Take a good look at him and learn from him. Whoa, <laughs> so much for a Sunday school lesson, huh? So why in the world would Jesus tell the disciples this confounding parable? And even more so, why would he hold up the crooked manager as a role model? Well, because Jesus is ready for the disciples to lift their eyes to a higher place. He's ready for them to lift their eyes to a higher and different place. Recall that Jesus is on the long journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And with every step, they're getting closer. And Jesus knows when he, is, when he offers his life, 
out of love for others, very much like that little eight-year-old boy, reality for the disciples will change. Hence, he holds up the crooked manager. The crooked manager knows that the reality of his life is about to change. He had enjoyed the stability, the stability of a good job and constant wages, place to live, and that's all going to be taken from him. His old life is over. His old life is over, and he must step into the new reality. As Jesus and the disciples come ever closer to Jerusalem, the cross looms greater and greater. And Jesus knows that because of that cross, the disciples are going to be offered a chance to enter a new reality, the kingdom of God. But they need to set their eyes to that higher place. Now I'm going to pause here for a moment and unpack a preacher's term, the kingdom of God. I mean, the term is rife in the Gospels, and yet we preachers kind of throw it out like candy on, at a parade, expecting the people we serve and love to gobble it up without asking questions. But it's a very, very pivotal point in the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus knows, Jesus knows that when he offers himself willingly to be betrayed, arrested, tortured, horribly executed, and hung on the cross, when he dies, and is buried and is raised again, a new reality will open up for the disciples and everyone else. A new reality. The kingdom of God. Now, I've been pondering, how do I describe the kingdom of God in, well, more modern terms? Well, surely most of you have watched, watched some kind of space adventure from time to time. Maybe you can remember a time that uh, a crew is on a spaceship and they have the ability to open up a portal so you can go from this reality where you kind of have the daily grind and you step over into the portal and you're in a different world, right? You've seen those, right? You step into a portal and then you can step back. So you go from this reality, the world in which you're living, to another reality and you can step back and forth. I remember when I was a boy, I really enjoyed the works of Madeline Lingle, the Episcopalian novelist. And in her most famous book, A Wrinkle in Time, which is aptly named, she talks about a tesseract where, where time, time is folded. And so because time can be folded, you can go from this reality to the other reality and back again. <laughs> we had... Of course, you know, we always have good critics at each service. At the 9 o'clock, uh, Scott Rose and really his son, Jack Rose, said, Hey, what about Indiana Jones? I said, well, we're going to go through every supernatural show, you know. But uh, if you think about um, in Indiana Jones, um, he, when that, I think it's the last one where he has to step out over the chasm and then the steps appear uh, to lead to a different reality, to, to a safe harbor. That's what's being offered to the disciples 
and to you and to me. Now, this is extremely important for us to get our arms around. Because, you see, when Jesus offers himself and he's raised again, when he's raised again, he doesn't just make us, he just, just doesn't uh, make us um, um, uh, acceptable to God. He makes us available to God. You see that? He doesn't just make us acceptable to God. He makes us available to God again. And immediate communion with God is made possible for you and me. That's big news. That is big news. Uh, we often, we, we're kind of comfortable talking about the fact that because of Jesus' work, we can, we can be re reunited with God, but we, we don't think too often that we, the reunion is supposed to happen right away. It's supposed to happen immediately. We step over into the, into the new reality and, well, it's like Eden has been reopened. Do you remember in the Genesis story how, how Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening could speak directly with God? Well, that's been reopened for you and me. That is how we are supposed to live and the gift that's been given to us. It is incredible. It's an incredible gift. This morning, I was reading the journals of the diary of, of Henri Nouwen, the, the late great Roman Catholic theologian. And I've always liked him because he's so honest. I like him for the same reason I like Frederick Buechner, the Presbyterian uh, uh, that is just, they're incredibly honest Christian authors. But in this case, uh, Nowen says, I just don't know how I can get close to you, God. There's a canyon between me and you. And I found myself in my prayers this morning saying, no, there's not. No, there's not. There's no canyon between you and God. The moment that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, a construction crew completely filled in that canyon. That canyon is filled. There is no canyon between God and Henri. There's no canyon between God and you. We only have to step over into the new reality. That is the only way we can live a full life, is doing that. We've got to get over this idea that we're saved by the blood of Jesus, but we've not offered a new life in Jesus. I am crazy about each one of you. I think you're wonderful folks. But there is no way you can make yourself right with God. You will never live up the expectations that the Bible prescribes, ever. Except through the new reality. The Lord Jesus wants to be in immediate communion with you and me. And that is incredibly good news. In the final movement of Paul's greatest symphony... The letter to the Romans. And chapter 12, verse 2, he hits a crescendo and he says this. Listen carefully. And it's a crescendo. He says, do not be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what is the will of God. And do what is good and acceptable and perfect. Whoa! Whoa, 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 whoa! Do the perfect? <laughs> the only way we can even come close is by living in the new reality. 
And I tell you, my dear friends, that is the promise that's been given to you and me, and it's true. And as we mature in Christ, what's going to happen? What's going to happen as we mature in Christ is that we'll spend much more time in this reality. And we'll crave being in the presence of God. And we'll be changed in ways that we knew we couldn't change ourselves. That's being transformed. You see? That's how it happens. C.S. Lewis, I, be I believe um, in mere Christianity, says that Christians are amphibians. I love that term. Christians are amphibians. We have one foot in this world where the daily grind is, but we have another foot over here in the new reality, in the kingdom of God. And more and more, we begin to be here. And you see, then heaven begins to make sense. Heaven is not an end-of-life thing. Heaven is where we gradually end up. We, we spend more and more time in the new reality. Therefore, heaven makes all the sense in the world. You see? The canyon has been filled in. And you and I can live in this intimate communion with the Lord. Eden has been reopened for business. And we've been invited to live there. You may say, well, I don't know how that's going to work. You know, I just don't see how it's going to happen. Uh, and again, the, the crooked manager shows us. Remember that when he sees the new reality on the horizon, when he knows it's going to happen, he's going to lose his job. He knows that everything he's counted on is going away. And a new, and then there's a new reality for him. He begins to make small, a series of small steps. Like Indiana Jones stepping out into the abyss. He begins to make a series of small steps. And little by little, he will begin to experience a new reality. So it's true for you and for me. Right after, right after Jesus commends uh, the, the crooked manager, he says, whoever is faithful in a little will be faithful in much. Small things, like picking up the phone and making the call to the person that you think ought to be calling you. But guess what? In the new reality, you make the call. You no longer wait. Or you pick up the pen and you write the note that you thought the person was supposed to write you. It does not make any difference because in the new reality, we're glad to write the letter. In the new reality, we make a pan of cookies or we make a pot of soup and we go see the person we've neglected. In the new reality, we give a hug when we really don't like touching people that much because we're swept up in it. In the new reality, we don't say everything that we could say, which reminds me of a friend I have by the name of Gatachu. Uh, and his last name, what in the world is it? What is your last name, Gotachu? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not Smith, I knew that. <laughs> Gotachu is a Kenyan, and a few weeks ago, he opened a medical clinic in northern Kenya, which is 100% Muslim. He opened a clinic, and we helped him some. And on the first day, 
500 mamas with their children showed up for medical care. 500. The women spend their days taking care of their beloved children, just like us, and they herd sheep and goats. So, Gitachi is feeling pretty good about opening up this clinic until the women all surround him. And they, they demand of him, why are you doing this? Knowing that he was a Christian. And Katachi said, well, because God loves each one of you. The next question was harder. Well, then tell us about your God. Now, at this point, they were expecting Gatachu to beat them over the head with some kind of arcane argument uh, for the primacy of the Christian revelation of, of God. Instead, when they said, tell us about your God, he looked at them, all 500, and said, well, he's a lot like you. He's a good shepherd who leads, leads those he loves to what they need. After all, he led you here. And with that, their eyes lifted to another place. And a small step in the revolution began to occur. By the way, Hitachi, stand up. Yeah, amen. Stay up, stay up. Gitachu is a lot more interesting than I am. Uh, that's, I know, not hard for you to fathom. But uh, he'll be out in the courtyard after the celebration, and I hope you get to know him. Uh, he's invited Kay and me in November to come spend time with him, at which time he said he's going to abandon me in the middle of Kenya. But, um, uh, but uh, anyway... <laughs> The next time you see these two jokers will be in Sonora. <laughs> so anyway, please get to know Gitachu because he's the real thing. He's the real thing. And thinking about these small steps, I took a prayer from my first preaching coach and I want to end today with that prayer for all of us. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Jesus, most of this week will not christen a ship, write a book, end a war, appoint a cabinet, dine with a queen, convert a nation, or be burned at the stake. More likely, the week will present no more than a chance to give a cup of water, write a note, visit a nursing home, vote for a county commissioner, teach a Sunday school class, share a meal, tell a child a story, go to choir practice, or feed the neighbor's cat. Blessed Jesus, as I do these seemingly invisible acts, may my eyes be fixed on your word. Whoever is faithful in a little is faithful also in much. Amen. Amen. Let us stand.